From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. The Liberal Party is sliding further on climate change, claiming it will meet targets but without policy to do so. At the same time, the Labor Party is fighting an internal push to abandon its climate platform. Paul Bongiorno on the politics of doing less. So, Paul, is this the week that Australian politics finally grappled with the need for a climate policy? Ah, oh, would that that was the fact, Elizabeth. We've been grappling with this in different ways for some time, at least 10 years, even longer if you want to go back uh, to the Hawke government. Paul Bongiorno is a columnist for the Saturday paper. But anyway, this was the week that Labor looked like it might really be sliding, that the coalition started to come under real pressure and that former members of parliament were being arrested at climate protests. Uh, The charge is for refusing an order to move on. I mean, it's pretty stark. Scott Ludman, a former Green senator, was one of the 30 people arrested at an Extinction Rebellion protest in Sydney and bailed on conditions that you'd expect for an outlaw motorcycle gang member. While Angus Taylor is talking about government subsidies for coal-fired power stations. We just need that affordable, reliable supply, uh, which needs to have a heavy dose of, of gas coal and uh, and hydro alongside the... Rest. There's a hell of a lot to unpack there. So let's start with the coalition and with an interview that Malcolm Turnbull gave to the Australian newspaper this week. What surprised you most about that interview? Well, in many ways, the fact that he gave it to the Australian... The Australian, of course, is the newspaper that played a big role in the anti-climate change action sentiment that saw him lose the leadership, not only when he was Prime Minister, but previously when he was opposition leader... Timbal even acknowledged this in the interview. He said, The failure to have a coherent national energy policy is founded on this rock of climate denialism inside the Liberal Party and inside the media. And he said, including at the newspaper, the journalist he was talking to worked for. And I suppose we should praise the Australian for actually printing that comment. He said the Liberal Party has proved itself incapable of dealing with the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in any sort of systematic way. He said the consequence of this was without question that we're paying higher prices for electricity and producing higher emissions. Turnbull defends himself as a true conservative against those who dumped him as Prime Minister on the pretext that he was too left or not one of us. He says there is nothing conservative in denying the science of climate change. In Turnbull's mind, it is denying reality. And as he said, you may as well deny gravity. Because his uh, opponents, critics within the Liberal Party, seized on his attitude to climate change and climate change action as the pretext to get uh, rid of him, I think that Turnbull could see, given the uh, Extinction Rebellion protests in Australia and around the world, it was probably time to uh, strike back and... uh, put his views in the broader mainstream perspective. So, Paul, let's go to the man that replaced Turnbull, Scott Morrison. Is there any change in his rhetoric on climate change? Yeah, well, in the in the run-up to the May 18 election, Morrison, who you may remember, brought a lump of coal into the parliament and held it up like kryptonite to the Labor Party. Well, he pivoted his rhetoric to accepting the science of climate change and dressing up his half-baked responses as more serious than they are. 
and he claimed and continues to claim that the coalition will meet its Paris targets and do so in a canter. So our target is no slouch. And let no one tell you it is. It's a fair income commitment. It's a serious commitment that requires real effort to achieve. And we are playing our part. We are doing our bit. Morrison's commitment is to a 26 to 28% cut in emissions by 2030. And this was the message he took again to the United Nations General Assembly speech when he trumpeted Australia as world leading in uh, combating climate change or ameliorating it. By 2020, Australia will have overachieved on our Kyoto commitments, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by 367 million tonnes more than required to meet our 2020 Kyoto target. Now, there are a few members, whether at this forum or the OECD, who can make this claim. And, of course, as, as we know from other discussions, to do that, all sorts of accounting fudges will be used. Paul, is public opinion shifting on the issue of climate change? Well, the opinion polls show that. And and in fact, the opinion polls in the lead up to the election also showed that climate change is perceived as the number one threat facing Australia and facing the planet. But the the point at issue here is, is it a vote changer in such a way that a climate denialist government would lose an election? And what we saw at the last election was in seats like Kooyong in Melbourne or Higgins, there was a big swing towards green-leaning candidates, either independents or Green Party. But uh, with our preferential system, not enough to see, for example, the Liberal Party lose the seat. So Morrison, of course, can't take too many chances here. He knows, for example, that Liberal polling mirrors the polling that we've seen from the Lowy Institute and other opinion polls, and that's why he's pivoted his rhetoric. And Morrison's own party, some within his own party, but particularly people like Angus Taylor, are making it quite difficult for Morrison to be on the right side of these opinion polls. Yes, well, I I actually think that Morrison and his front bench are actually talking out of both sides of their mouths here because we're also hearing from Angus Taylor the mantra that the government's serious about climate change action and we're getting on with it and we're going to deliver. But he was unmasked, if you like, this week at a climate summit where he shocked even the energy regulator by announcing he was going to use taxpayers' money to underwrite coal-fired power stations. Taylor tried to mask his intention by lumping it in with funding for new gas and pumped hydro plants. But it's clear to me and I'm sure to others that the ideological attachment to coal is still there. You don't have to scratch much below the surface, as it were, to find it when it comes to Angus Taylor and many in the Liberal Party. We'll be right back. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox 
every weekday morning with post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. The other side of the story, of course, Paul, is Labor's position on climate change. What's happening there this week and what's new? Yeah, Anthony Albanese has um, created a vacuum and um, as a result, he's also created a bit of a mess for himself uh, over the directions that the party should take when it comes to climate change. They're trying to work out what to do. After the election, Anthony Albanese became leader and he appointed Joel Fitzgibbon not only as agriculture spokesman again, but he gave him resources. Now, Fitzgibbon almost lost his seat at the election. There was a swing of something like 9% against Labor and he hung on by the fingernails. So the election result put the wind up him. In fact, one Labour insider told me Joel's gone rogue. Well, (laughs) he certainly has. The topic for tonight's talk is the world is moving while Australia stands still. Joel, it's given you very welcome. Thank you. Well, he went to the Sydney Institute on Wednesday where he ran up the white flag. We didn't speak to people who had traditionally supported our party. It seems that's because to do so would have been in conflict with our city-centric narrative. He largely blamed the three election losses in a row on Labor's more ambitious climate change policies. He asked how many times are we going to let it kill us? How many, how many leaders do we have to lose as a result of this crap? Australia, as I'm sure most of you know, is, a, is responsible for about 1.3% of global emissions. Nothing we do alone can make a difference. Nothing we do alone can make a difference. But we must act, because as a wealthy nation, arguably one of the most wealthy nations in the world, we have a responsibility to show leadership. He said it was time to reach a sensible settlement on climate change. What does he mean when he says a sensible settlement on climate change? What does that look like according to Fitzgibbon? Well, it looks almost exactly like the coalition's policy, though with some, well, more serious undertakings to meet those targets and with a focus on the upper target of 28% reduction by 2030. Now, what would be the outcome? Think about this. If Labor offered a political settlement and simply made 28% the target for 2030, the focus would then be on them on the government. No distraction, Prime Minister, are you on track to meet your 28% target and can you show us what the pathway is there? Fitzgibbon says Labor can achieve this without destroying blue-collar jobs or destroying the economy. Very familiar words, usually in the mouths of Taylor and Morrison. Well, what this does is set up an almighty brawl for next year's Labour Party National Conference. Already Albanese, who's overseas, has had to tweet his commitment to real climate change action. And the shadow minister for climate change, Mark Butler, has said there's no way Labour will adopt the Liberal targets. And Turnbull wasn't the only former leader giving interviews this week. Bill Shorten did his first major interview since losing the election with the Herald Sun. That's right. Bill Shorten spoke to the um, Sunday Herald Sun. This is interesting because Shorten put Murdoch papers basically in the deep freeze before the election. The fact that he gave this fairly newsworthy uh, interview to a Murdoch paper shows that he's had a rethink on a lot of his tactics 
Well, he said it pained him to realise that he missed some of the mood in Queensland and Western Australia. He said Labor's policies had been seen as green left, not for the worker and not for the working people. So Shorten offered a mayor culpa on his tax agenda and said there were too many messages. What's the purpose of an interview like this? Is it a vehicle through which Shorten can kind of get back to a clean slate? Well, look, I think it has two purposes. I think the first purpose is to preempt the findings of the uh, internal inquiry into why Labor did badly at the election. It pains me in the weeks and months since the election to realise that some blue-collar workers and their families thought that a vote for Labor might have been a vote for the environment but not a vote for their own jobs. So so Shorten uh, didn't admit that he was the problem, but many people uh, within the Labor Party believe that he was also an element in Labor's failure. And, Paul, is this the sort of interview that you give because maybe you want to run for Prime Minister again? Well, look, that's the widespread perception that he fed with this interview. And one of the main reasons for that is he said that he has no intention of quitting politics. In fact, he'd like to hang around for another 20 years. You don't send those sort of messages if you've been a leader for six years and not think maybe like Lazarus, you can rise again. Where have I heard that before? So is this a story of never say never? Well, yes, I think it is. I think that Shorten would look at the example of uh, John Howard, who led the Liberals to election defeats, who was overlooked as leader in subsequent years. Uh, But then almost a decade later, the party turned to him again and he then went on to become Australia's second longest serving Prime Minister. (laughs) Politics can be so wild, Paul. (laughs) Well, it can. And and people claim many politicians are unelectable as leader or premier. They said it of Jeff Kennett. They said it of Tony Abbott. They even said it of uh, Scott Morrison. And we can see that, um, in a sense, nobody's unelectable, depending on the circumstances, the luck and the chutzpah. (laughs) Paul, thank you so much. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts, and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth, with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Elsewhere in the news, Turkish troops have begun a land offensive in northeastern Syria, hours after fighter jets bombed the border region. The offensive has prompted civilians to flee en masse, while the Turkish army says that it's hit a total of 180 militant targets using airstrikes. Kurdish-led forces say the operation has killed five civilians and injured dozens more. And in the midst of this escalating crisis, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton has ruled out immediately rescuing the Australians trapped in camps in northern Syria, most of them the wives and children of foreign fighters. It's estimated that 20 women and 40 children are currently stranded there, 
Dutton said that some of the women trapped in the camps were capable of mounting a mass casualty event in Australia. 7am's senior producer is Emile Klein. Our producers are Ruby Schwartz, Michelle Macklem and Atticus Basto, who also mixes our show. This week, Elle Marsh joins 7am as our features and field producer, a position supported by a grant from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Eric Jensen is our editor. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. Special thanks this week to Elaine Thomas. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you next week.